Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for interviews with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm your host, Sam Sedan, joined by my colleague and co-host, Jasmine Gale. Hey, folks. We've got two interviews coming your way for Pride this month. Catherine Milan, a co-manager of Philly Aid's Thrift at Giovanni's Room, a wonderful bookstore in Center City, Philadelphia, as well as Phoenix Baldwin, the artist behind Dino Tunes, an LGBTQ inclusive children's book series. The first two books are available on Bookshop now. We should mention Giovanni's Room is the oldest LGBTQ bookstore in the country as well. Right, and crucial to their mission, as we'll hear. And got their name from a wonderful James Baldwin novel. You know, I think that's the only novel of his I haven't read. Dang, Sam. Well, all of his works recover the nuances of the socio-political landscape of Blacks and gays during the civil rights era. His essays and books, like Giovanni's Room, are some of the first explorations of gay rights. Baldwin moved to Europe because of this tension in 1948 and eight years later wrote Giovanni's Room, a story of a man living in Paris and begins to have an affair with an Italian bartender named Giovanni, a story that belongs in an LGBTQ bookstore. Uh, So speaking of which, I understand you did some research into the very first LGBT bookstore. Oh, yeah. Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop in New York City opened in 1967 by Craig Rodwell, who's an activist during that time. Craig Rodwell was only 26 when he tried convincing the Mattachine Society to have a bookstore with a communal space. When they rejected this idea, he decided to create his own with no experience of running a bookshop, the first of its kind to organize literature under gay culture. Rodwell moved the store towards Christopher Street, the heart of New York City gay life, but the original location closed in 1974. This really spawned more bookstores to do the same like the guests we have today. So it really became a center for the community and organizing. Bookstores are great for that, finding like-minded folks and such. Well, let's get to that interview now. Here's Catherine Milan, the co-manager of Philly AIDS Thrift at Giovanni's Room, located in Center City, Philadelphia. They are the oldest LGBTQ bookstore in the country still running. So Catherine, why don't we get started there? What is Philly AIDS Thrift? What is Giovanni's Room? And what's your mission? Philly AIDS Thrift is a local 501c3 nonprofit founded in 2005 by four friends who were longtime HIV AIDS activists slash lovers of junk who combined their passions and the never-ending yard sale that is Philly AIDS Thrift was born. We have a main store, which is located at uh, 5th and Bainbridge. They've been operating in that general area, although they've moved several storefronts several times since 2005, and they've just grown exponentially. We've just grown exponentially in that time. And they become a bigger and bigger operation with more and more license to give back the money that the, the, and the profits they make to the community. And what happened was, as well as Affiliate Thrift, there was a separate entity for a long time, this bookstore known as Giovanni's Room, which is the oldest continuously running LGBTQ bookstore in the U.S., And it was originally funded in 1973 by, again, four LGBT friends slash activists who were inspired by the gay and feminist bookstores they saw when they visited New York City. And they were like, well, why can't we have that in Philly? So they literally just started it themselves from the ground up. There's a there's a lot of backstory. I hate to to drone on, but you know we started started in several different locations. We encountered different opposition at different parts of the city. They eventually settled in the building that we are in now in 1976, and they purchased this building and then they purchased the building next to it several years later. And that was you know since the 80s that was Giovanni's room as it were for decades and decades it was a a a hot spot for the community it was a place of 
a grassroots activism organization, community organization, protests, and an information center. And then, because of the way that, you know, the, the, the way that the culture evolved <laughs> in the 90s with the, the big box chain bookstores and then Amazon, of course, by 2000, by the early 2000s and late in 2010s, the store was having trouble making a profit. So actually, Ed Hermance, who had continuously managed the store since the early 70s, uh, declared they would close in 2014. And that's when Philly AIDS thrift was like, I'm sorry, you know, this is literally, this is a pillar of the community. We can't allow this to close. And it was, this was international news. This was, you know, there were pieces in Rolling Stone. There was a segment on MTV. And so they stepped in. We took over operations of the store, incorporating a nonprofit thrift model to cut down on overhead. And I'm uh, happy to let you know it's been pretty successful. And in 2018, we were able to purchase the building that we now live in so we can make renovations, as it were, make changes. And uh, yeah, we're trying to continue the legacy of Giovanni's room into the future. Uh, yeah. So just curious how you see Giovanni's room as a community organizing space moving forward with everything going on in the world, uh, especially with independent bookstores shutting down. Yeah, basically, well, there's a there's several ways that we can sort of incorporate that. There's definitely the idea of simply preserving the space, making sure the store stays open. It's really interesting with Giovanni's room. We get so many customers who come in and they tell us, I haven't been here in five years. I haven't been here in 10 years. I haven't been here since the 70s. And they are overjoyed to find that it is still open, that it is still a presence in the city. A lot of them just sort of assume that it went under, like so many independent bookstores have gone under. And of course they did, you know, in 2014. Um, so the idea that we can still help preserve the legacy and, and keep the space open and keep the space functioning is of course a major factor. And then there's also just the changing tenor of the discussions in the LGBTQ community over the past five or 10 years. And hopefully they will continue to change and there will continue to be incorporation of new ideas, new identities, new awarenesses that need to be raised. And yeah, we're, we're happy to, to give those voices a platform and amplify that discussion any way we can. We, you know, hold book events and we try and uh, bring more attention to, to certain authors. As one of the oldest LGBTQ bookstores and being an independent bookstore, you have a lot of say over what titles you do and don't carry on your mm. shelves. Um, and unlike a lot of other stories, you have a specific focus. So how do you reply to an author visiting your shop and asking you to carry their book? Or I guess to take a step back, do you want them to come into the store? Is it a phone call, an email sufficient? Can you walk us through that? It really does depend on the individual cases. It can be either very direct or very complex. One of the things we often have to talk to authors about is that unfortunately we don't have any way to market eBooks which can come as a surprise to them. We don't have any kind of ebook stock or, you know, we don't sell them on our website. We only deal with physical books. We try to prioritize uh, local authors since we see that as part of our function in the community. We also try and of course prioritize authors that are dealing with queer content, queer stories, authors that are part of the LGBTQ communities themselves. Beyond those two sort of prerequisites, we're really very open. We try and say yes to as many people as possible. But we do have to keep in mind that we are limited by the physical space we have, again, because we are a physical bookstore selling physical books. There is just, you know, the practical concerns of do we have the shelf space at this time to take on more titles for this particular section? Do we think this works with what we already have in this section? 
So what are some of the indicators that you're looking for uh, just right off the bat when somebody comes to you and says, all right, I want want you to carry my book. How, How do you vet them? We usually discuss it as a managerial team. We look at the offers that come in. Yeah, um, there's usually a discussion as a managerial. Uh, what would you carry books on consignment, or do they need to be ordered wholesale? No, we order through a distributor. So I would imagine they need to be fully returnable. Sometimes, sometimes not. Again, it really is usually like a team sort of uh, discussion. We look at the book. If it's something that we especially feel like fits in with um, what we already carry and what we try and prioritize. Um, We try and prioritize like a diversity of uh, voices, a diversity of topics. So say if someone comes to us and they're like, I really want you guys to, to take a look at this book that we have, but we already have maybe five books that are just like it. And they're very good sellers for the store. You know, we'll try and promote it a little bit. We'll make sp- we'll make a page for it on our website and maybe, you know, write it up on a couple of lists, but we might not actually order copies into the store. How about for a book signing or an event? Book signings and events, again, depend usually on whether or not people can say to us, yes, I know that I can bring an audience with me of at least like five to 10 people. They can show us proof of like some kind of following. And again, it's not even, we're not trying to be gatekeepers in that respect, but it is, you know, we feel bad for people who come and they set up the event and they're very excited. And then there is just no one. So there has to be a little bit of a system in place, especially if they're not local where they know that there will be an audience and actually audience members usually in the store will encourage other sort of more casual stoppers to stop what they're doing and then participate in the event itself. Yes. I'm curious to know, like, how has your business shifted during the pandemic? During lockdown, we really had to focus on website orders, (laughs) which was rough because that's such a small fraction of our business. I don't think that the way we do business necessarily has changed, but I think that we have sort of become more aware of the potential for community outreach and sort of making the the culture and the community of the store more available without being here in person. Uh, that was one of the big inspirations between what we're doing now, which is starting up the podcast, where it's a really sort of informal thing. We're trying to, you know, get more involved in the community, do interviews with people who are involved in queer art and spaces in Philadelphia. But we're also trying to introduce people to like the 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 people that work here, you know, introduce audience to the different names and characters of people who work at the store, the stories of working at the store and, you know, what it's like on a day-to-day basis, just so we can, you know, again, we're still at a place where it's not always possible for people to be here physically for a multitude of reasons. So we're trying to make it more available and make it feel more inclusive without needing that physical aspect. That was Catherine Milan Affiliates Thrift at Giovanni's Room. Have you been to her shop? I have been, yeah. Part of my ongoing effort to see all the bookstores in Philly. Do they have any Phoenix Baldwin books? Unfortunately not, but I did follow up with Catherine after we talked to make sure that she knows how she can order book baby titles wholesale. Uh, So we should be able to get her some copies of formerly known as Ella. I'm sure Phoenix appreciates you for hustling in. Uh, Let's roll right into that interview then. Phoenix Baldwin is the author and illustrator behind Dino Tunes, an online comic strip relating LGBTQ stories to children through the use of really creative characters. His most recent book, formerly known as Ella, was released in April and follows the coming out of Echo, the non-binary Ineosaurus. Phoenix, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Did I get that Ineosaurus right? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated that in your book, there's uh, explanations for how to pronounce these words. <laughs> yes. I, I One of the first things when I started getting into dinosaur books was that my mom said to me, you know, parents have to read these. If you're going to have weird names, you better put something in there <laughs> to help, help them along. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> So Book Baby is now about you know, 40,000 independently published books into our catalog here. And I don't think we've ever had a book quite as unique as yours. So can you tell us where, where did Dino Tunes come from? Where did this idea originate? Dino Tunes started when I was keeping a regular journal back in college. So every morning I would be waiting for the building to open up. And I just started writing about how I really was interested in doing something that was uh, LGBT inclusive. And I just happen to be very obsessed with dinosaurs. I have been since I was a kid. So it was just kind of a natural thing that I started to combine those passions together. And, you know, it, it was all very tiny little notes in the corner of the page for a while there. But I never would have expected it to grow into something where I have two books published. So how long have you been working on them now? Uh, since 2019. Though formerly known as Ella was unique in that I was completing it under a bit of a rush in order to keep a, a trademark that I filed for for the name Dino Tunes, I actually made formerly known as Ella in under two months from January to March of this year. Wow. And you're doing all of the writing and illustrating? That's right. I'm, I'm doing the writing, the illustration, and as of right now, the marketing by myself as well. <laughs> All right, well, so this book, uh, it really feels to me like this would have a shot at catching on with a traditional publisher. You know, you've got these great characters and, and a lot of potential. Uh, is that a route that you considered? Why self-publish? As far as right now goes, I haven't been looking into publishers, mostly out of a fear that there would be some pushback for the kind of stories that I want to tell. I know that there's a lot of places that are publishing LGBT inclusive stories at this point, but it's so important to me to tell the stories as authentically as possible. And the biggest thing that I worry about is interference with that. So that's why I've been self-published so far. And why book baby? To be completely honest, when I looked into self-publishing, it was the first result. I, I looked into it and I got a quote pretty early on. And I just liked the way that things were being done with book baby. I saw some of the reviews and after talking to some peers, it, it seemed like the right choice for me. It, it was a little difficult at first. My first book, I didn't understand formatting very well. And there were some hiccups with me trying to make it an ebook as well. But by the time I got to formerly known as Ella, I, I understood the process and it was a lot smoother at that point. So Phoenix, in your bio on your website, uh, you mm -hmm. described that you dropped out of art school. Now, like <laughs> having true. a successful children's book, um, I'm curious, like what drew you to art school and then the decision to leave? Was it? So yeah. my original plan was to go to art school and get an animation degree and work in animation. But unfortunately, there was some heavy restructuring at the school. Uh, that I was in disagreement with. I um, petitioned the school to keep some teachers who were very effective teachers that they wanted to let go. And after fighting it for about a semester, I saw that it was a battle that I couldn't win. And that's what led to me leaving one school and going to a community college where one of those teachers was still teaching. Coincidentally, the first class I took at the community college was a children's book illustration course. So that worked out. <laughs> Yeah, I see how it kind of led into the 
dino tunes there i understand you have a patreon too what sort of content do you release there on on my patreon uh i'm still building things up but right now there's previews for the third book which is titled sam is super duper picky there's also exclusive merchandise on there uh shirts stickers mugs that sort of thing i'm releasing coloring book pages on there as well though i plan on eventually doing a uh printed coloring book as well we can certainly help you out with that. <laughs> I, I did see that. <laughs> I noticed that you had some goals listed. I thought that that was really interesting. You know, a really good idea to stay organized and see, see you know, how much it oh, would definitely. take to you know, have you do this as your full-time job. Definitely. That's been something that I've struggled with for a long time. I've been doing part-time work as a freelance artist, doing pet, pet portraits, or if someone wants say emotes for a chat site that they're using i do little side jobs like that but it's really not enough to stay afloat especially because i live in california where cost of living is a bit a bit much so i've been looking for part-time work outside of my art to support dino tunes and keep at it but i'm hoping that eventually the patreon will get to a point where i can do dino tunes full-time do you do those illustrations via fiber or a different platform I usually just advertise on places like Instagram. I post my email. Hey, I'm open for freelance work. I have an art station as well where I have a more full com- uh, portfolio because right now, uh, right now on the DinoTunes Instagram, you see mostly just DinoTunes, but I actually do a wide variety of art styles. Uh, I'm not familiar with that platform. Is that uh, another one for you know finding uh, art freelance station? artists? ArtStation is uh, a portfolio site, so it's for a lot of professional artists, mostly game developers, visual dev artists, uh, people like that. It's not generally used by children's book illustrators, as far as I know, but it's one of the sites that I got on early. So as far as uh, you know, when, when you're trying to find people to work with uh, in, in that realm, is there anything specific that you're looking for that uh, maybe our listeners would find helpful when they're looking for illustrators? Oh, if you're looking for illustrators, one of the best resources I have in mind is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. They have a website and there's a large list of illustrators open for work with examples of their portfolios readily available there. For this title, for uh, formerly known as Ella, I'm curious uh, how you've been marketing in it and uh, specifically if you've marketed to any school teachers, librarians. Uh, I'd imagine there's a large group of people looking for uh, inclusive content like this. That's something that I have admittedly struggled with. Marketing has never really been my strong suit. In fact, writing never really was either. I started just as an illustrator, but through Instagram uh, ads, that's been my main source of marketing so far, and it does bring in a steady stream of people. I do want to bring formerly known as Ella to schools. There's an elementary school close by to where I live that I, I attended growing up. So I want to do that, but the climate has been so uncertain when it comes to certain LGBT titles being banned in different states. Thankfully, not so much in California, but it is something that I worry about since Dino Tunes as a trademark is also publicly listed. It's, it's something that I do find myself being nervous about people seeing my address or sending hate mail. I don't know, but it's important work. 
Yeah, I'm curious with banned books uh, making the news so often these days, you know, what, what do you think is the value of kids reading inclusive books like yours? Well, for one, if I had had LGBT inclusive literature growing up, I probably would have realized that I was transgender at a much younger age. For me, it was a completely foreign concept until the middle of high school, at which point it was like all these dots started being connected. Oh, oh my goodness, as I'm listening to all these people, it sounds just like me. So I think that having these books that would teach kids about it early on would make it so that people aren't wondering, you know, what's up with me? Why am I, why am I different? There's reasons, you know, we're, we're all different kinds of people. And furthermore, there's different kinds of parents out there too. There's lesbian families, there's families that have a non-binary parent or uh, an, a different transgender parent. So with all these different kinds of families coming about too, it's not even just about the kids discovering themselves, but learning more about their families and seeing that it's normal and okay that their family may not look like every other family. It's a good answer. I always uh, am surprised how much the children themselves are actually just left out of that conversation. That's so true. You know, gay people are kids too at one point, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and with your book in particular, a lot of the value apart from for the individual children who, who identify this way is that you give kind of a framework for accepting Ella. And so yeah. Porter kind of has a bad reaction and echoes... You know, it doesn't reply angrily. It's more of, uh, you know, working through that. And I'm curious uh, if, that, if that's something you thought about having, being able to relate to maybe negative emotions right away. Right. So formerly known as Ella is in many ways a direct response to a family member who didn't respond well when I came out. In large part, I think of it as what's the most realistic, but also most ideal way that this could play out. So Porter having this strong reaction of, well, if you change your name and pronouns, then you're not the person I know anymore. I don't know you and I'm scared of you. I think that that's something that is, is a difficult point of view to consider because a lot of people in the LGBT community will say, you just have to accept us outright. And ultimately, it's not very sympathetic to the people who are just not fully understanding. You know, it may not be a hateful thing. It may not be that someone is going to reject you forever, but understanding where their fear is coming from is the basis for formerly known as Ella. I didn't want Porter to be some cartoon villain who needs to just get some smacks, some sense smacked into him. So having this realistic and careful turnaround where Porter has an authentic apology, where he's really thinking about how this has affected Echo, that was something that was really important to me. I didn't want it to feel like it was a fairy tale ending. I wanted it to feel achievable. Yeah, I thought that that, that was really powerful and just kind of naming, you know, the specific thoughts that are coming to mind, which then would help a child who in that situation come to terms. Right. And I've noticed, too, that it's not just children, that oftentimes this is the same result that parents or other family members or even friends will respond with, no matter what age they are. The thought of this person that I know is changing is one that many people go to when that's usually not the case. It's usually 
you know, when, when I said that my name would be Phoenix and that I wanted people to use he, him pronouns for me, that was me becoming more of myself, not changing. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I could see, uh, you know, somebody reading this to their kid and, and saying, "Ooh, I recognize that feeling. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us what kind of criteria to look for in an illustrator? Earlier mentioning you do a lot of freelance work. And we just want to like let people who are listening to the podcast know like what is the best types of things to look for in an illustrator? Well, I may be a little bit biased because I'm an illustrator, but uh, I would say that someone who's willing to really work with you on the look of your of your book, who's not locked into one specific art style, who can show uh, adaptability and a variety of skills. I think that those are some of the most important things to uh, to look for, because beyond even just having one cool style, you want something that fits your story. Yeah, no, um, and I'm curious, like, uh, what kind of things would you be concerned about when you're working with an author? Like, some red flags you would watch out for. Um, you know, that's a good question. I think that there are a lot of authors that look for illustrators and purposefully lowball them. That's something that I've heard a lot of is that other other illustrators have complained to me, well, people people won't charge me what I'm worth. And you do have to keep in mind that drawing is a skill. It's not something that illustrators just do for fun. Yeah, fun is part of it. Art is fun, but it takes years to develop this as a skill. So being aware of how much your illustrator is worth is very important. Is that a price that you're setting as the illustrator or? I think that it needs to be something collaborative. Uh, personally, I, I would see how many pages the author has and quote it based on, a, on the full project. Some people, of course, are by the hour, however many hours it takes. But I prefer to have a fixed price and maybe a payment plan if needed. Um, so for me, for example, if, if I was to quote formerly known as Ella, I would look at the complexity of the illustrations on each page and I would, based on the amount of time it would take me, I would give them a set price. And then from that point, we could negotiate on, oh, well, what if I made this a little less complicated? Okay, then it would lower the price this much, that sort of thing. I don't think it should be one-sided. And that was Phoenix Baldwin, book baby author and the creator of Dianotunes. Sam, do you want to talk a little about Patreon? Yeah, absolutely. Patreon, they call themselves a membership platform. They give creators the ability to create subscription feeds to support their work. It's an attempt to answer an age-old question. How do you support the creation of art that doesn't necessarily have a commercial purpose? You know, I, ha I haven't seen a ton of authors using it yet, but a lot of podcasters do. They'll set some podcasts to exclusive, a few episodes, so that you motivate people to subscribe. I listen to a few of my favorites there because I think it's worth a couple of dollars so that the artist can support themselves. Yeah, it's really fascinating and um, creative. How many subscribers do you think someone needs to turn that side hustle into a job? That's a good question. I think boiling things down to a single number is something that everyone's kind of trying to do. Uh, I've discussed it a lot with Chad uh, over the years. So I try to do a little bit of math for this. Uh, and I'd certainly love to hear from people actually making it happen, though. So, you know, the median household income in the U.S. is 67000 Plus, you have the investment for materials and tools to actually make this content. So 
Round it up, maybe eighty thousand overhead is going to go up as things grow. Uh, you know, the the bigger podcast actually have to pay for guests and things like that. But you're also going to be an independent contractor, so you're probably going to need to cover your taxes and healthcare. So let's call it a hundred k in revenue or about eight thousand monthly. And if you can get say sixteen hundred people subscribe for five dollars monthly, you're pretty well set. Patreon gets a small cut of that too, so maybe let's round that up to two thousand people. But that still seems like a pretty reasonable mark to hit, no? A lot, but it doesn't seem like an impossible number. Yeah, it doesn't. Phoenix has a number of different revenue goals with 5K, which he explicitly says would give him the ability to do this full-time. Yeah, it's a dream, right? Creating art you care about full-time. I think that having that goal stated clearly is helpful, too, right on his website. You know, People are more willing to support if they know what their money is going to and you're able to see your progress. Agreed. So do you have any book recs for our listeners, Jess? We're highlighting some great books for Pride on Bookshop right now. Yes. Kristen Griffith, our featured author of the month on Bookshop, wrote a memoir called Rush about pledging a sorority that I've been digging into. Excellent. I'm midway through Hanya Yanagahara's To Paradise right now, this, this big brick next to me. Unfortunately, not a book baby title. Mm, someday. Yes, if you're Hanya Yanagahara, give us a call. Or if you're a writer at all, we want to hear from you and help turn your book into a reality. Our staff is available at info at bookbaby.com or 877-961-6878. Thanks go out to Catherine Milan of Philly Aids Thrift at Giovanni's Room. Be sure to stop by their shop and check out their podcast called Queer Atlas. Also giving thanks to Phoenix Baldwin. His most recent book is formerly known as Ella. You can find him at DinoTunes on social media and find his book at store.bookbaby.com along with thousands of other independently published books. And we'll be back next month for another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight.